This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. Listeners to this podcast already know that Fort Pierce is a reservation for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. Previously, guest Raleigh Gilliam told us all about its origins as a home for Black Seminole. In this episode, living historian Jim O'Dell joins us to describe the military origins of Fort Pierce, his hometown. A U.S. Navy veteran, Jim stepped into the part of playing U.S. Army Brevet Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Pierce to present public impressions of the fort's namesake and first commander during the Second Seminole War. What role did Fort Pierce play in the war? Who were its later famous commanders? And what became of the troops' payroll in gold that was lost when the schooner carrying the payroll master sank near the fort's inlet? We'll find out. Jim O'Dell, welcome to the Seminole Wars Authority. Thank you. Salutations and felicitations to you and your listeners. A beautiful day here on the Indian River here at the old Fort Park in Fort Pierce where the original fort was put together by Colonel Pierce's men of the 1st U.S. Artillery. Company F was his, his pride and joy. It's a quiet day here on the river, except for the train in the background and the train yard. Back in the day, what type of fort was Fort Pierce? It's a supply fort for operations going inside and interior of Florida help supply them, bring stuff from sea. This is the old Fort Park. It was built in January of uh, 1837. Colonel Pearson's men came down from Fort Ann with Levin Powell and his Navy Marine Expeditionary Force. They all sailed down in batal boats that they used up in Michigan, logging boats. They sailed down with all their supplies and set up the camp here. Uh, first, they tried to go across the river, but there was mosquitoes and everything over there, so they found a free-flowing spring here on this high bluff, and it made a perfect observation post along the coastline. That's how my little town started out, an army fort, like all the other 200-plus forts in Florida. (laughs) You take Fort Pierce very personally. You provide a living history impression of Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Pierce, the fort's namesake. What do we know about Lieutenant Colonel Pierce? There's a book that was written by Mr. Busby called Our Worthy Commander. Excerpts are taken from letters and everything else about Colonel Pierce in his lifetime. Lieutenant Colonel Pierce was a reverent lieutenant colonel. He was born on August 29th of 1790, studied law up in uh, New Hampshire, where his family's from. We know that Benjamin Pierce's brother, Franklin Pierce, became the president of the United States in the 1850s. Little known fact is that a descendant, Barbara Pierce, married a young man named George Herbert Walker Bush, and later gave birth to a son, George Walker Bush, who became a president of the United States, in addition to her husband. Now, back to our story. Didn't care for that much, so when uh, the War of 1812 broke out, he joined the Army and was put in charge of an artillery unit. Through the days and trials and all the battles for 38 years of his life, he sat there and traveled throughout the East Coast, all the way down from Maine and his battles all the way down to Florida, and then back up north after... uh, his transfer orders came through and, and transferred up there to do all the forts up there along the New England coast. And I married three times. He only had one daughter to survive to adulthood. She married an army officer, and she's actually buried on top of him up in New York in the same grave. I suppose it's, uh, she had a great fondness for her father, even though he was kind of distant, being always in the military and on the move and marching orders and everything else. It's an incredible saga of many of the soldiers from the American Revolution on that did their duty to the letter 
Myself, I did 17 years in the Navy. I have an appreciation for the military, especially since most of my family were veterans all the way from the French and Indian War forward. My little hometown here in Fort Pierce, (laughs) it's just an amazing place. Try to look at the old maps and figure out where everything was and everything along the river. And now it's modern architecture and construction and condominiums and blah, blah, blah. It's still one of the most beautiful places on earth. Tell us about your background and ties to Fort Pierce. I was born in Fort Pierce Memorial Hospital on May 27th of 1961. My mother was born in Valkyria in 1922, and my grandmother was born up in Fort Caroline. I don't really have a date of record of her. She died when my grandmother was nine years old from a rattlesnake bite, hanging clothes and stuff up in Valkyria. 90% of my family is crackers from waybackers. What's the composition of the city of Fort Pierce today? They have a small Indian housing area out on Okeechobee Road, 70 going west, called Kapuko. It was started because right there in that general area, the Seminoles and the IS Indians both had encampments right along the uh, 10 Mile Creek. They found all sorts of pottery and tools and everything else that the uh, Indians used. The Fort Pierce itself was an army fort. It was only occupied for about four or five years before they moved into the interior to fight. And likewise, the fort was sold to Manmaster Hogue and turned into a trading post. In the middle of the night, one night, uh, a fire broke out in the kitchen and it burned to the ground. And then the second fort, during the Third Seminole War, when Mr. Baker and some of the settlers up there under the Armed Occupation Act, they had a homestead up there, the area of St. Lucie Village. They were attacked by Seminoles. Mr. Baker was killed. So the Third Seminole War broke out for a short while. And Fort Capron is the other fort here in St. Lucie County. One of the cool things about it, the second commander of the fort was Lieutenant Ambrose P. Hill. And the very last commander was Abner Doubleday. He marched the troops out when they decommissioned the fort and took them all the way over to Fort Brook, which is quite a hike from here. Up there outside Fort Capron is a monument to the Capron Trail, which is the first East Coast road in Florida, in the southern part of Florida here. There's so much history here that's just unbelievable. There's a book, a Google book online called Through the Wilderness. Or just pick up a hard copy at the Seminole Wars Foundation website, SeminoleWars.us. By Dr. Jacob Rett Mott, who was a surgeon embarked with Major General Jessup. that went down and fought at Loxahatchee, but they embarked here for a period which made this the headquarters of the Army of Florida during the Second Seminole War for a little bit. The supply fort, so when his men showed up, went from a 500-man fort to a 2,000-man fort overnight, and all supplies went out of here. So Colonel Pierce had to go up to St. Augustine and emergency request to resupply the fort, which is right on the Indian River. They had a sally port where they could bring goods from boats and stuff up and resupply the fort. So it's a perfect place. It's immaculate. Matter of fact, Mr. Mott, in his book, sat there and talked about Fort Pierce and talked about the soldiers here that because of all the fresh seafood and all the game and everything here was plentiful, that soldiers were growing out of their uniforms, which is kind of funny when you think about it. Uh, Who were the Pierces? The long-life connection of Pierce family. Uh, His father was a hero at Bunker Hill, three times governor of New Hampshire. Colonel Pierce and his brother Franklin both studied law, and they both ended up going into the military. During the Third Seminole War, Franklin Pierce became President of the United States. He was military-minded, which, you know, most of the nonsense of 
politics goes out of the way when you have a military veteran in, in places of management and people and everything like that. So just a short visit there. His uh, secretary of war at the time was a man by the name of Jefferson Finnis Davis, which is pretty cool. Most of the officers that graduated West Point during that time period, the Second Seminole War, Thomas Jackson and all of them, they all came to the Mexican-American War and to Florida, cut their teeth and learn. And then after that, they all were facing off at each other during the war between the states. Thomas Jackson, he was stationed right there at Fort Meade, right across the way in Florida here. And uh, there's actually a monument dedicated to him uh, by the Sons of Confederate Veterans in the park there to his service to Florida. You mentioned that Lieutenant Colonel Pierce had to send up to St. Augustine to get additional supplies. You attended the bicentennial of the transfer of authority over Florida between Spain and the United States. What was that ceremony like? My friend Kim Cullors and I went up to the bicentennial up there in St. Augustine, adoption of Florida from Spain, 1821, and they had a recreation of the signing of the Otis Treaty, and yeah, there were reenactors there, not really reenactors, living historians. There were architects, archaeologists, professors and everything. As much history as I know, I was just kind of almost embarrassed to be there. But they opened the doors and let me come into the camps and be a part of them. And it was just an unbelievable experience that only happens once in a lifetime. It was just so amazing to see everything happen. And then we had the ambassador to Spain, his entourage, the commander-in-chief of the army and the navy was there. And uh, we had like 10 dignitaries from Spain. They came to the camp and we went to the St. Francis barracks and we did the exchange there. Me and Kim fell on uh, with one of the ladies there. Uh, she had a, a bronze naval cannon. So we fell in with her as uh, cannoneers on her team. And I uh, got to fire the salute for the lowering of the flag, bringing back up to the American flag and you know, the Spanish flag. One of the, the most amazing things to actually be a part of and see. And I always say the best way to learn history is by doing it. Every time I do a reenactment since 2002, I learn something new every single time. And working with living impressionists, my friend Jimmy Shirley, the commander of the Palm Beach Camp Sons of Confederate Veterans, one of my favorite quotes that he has is that our job as living historians is to put flesh back on the bones of those who can't stand up and speak anymore. History is the most remarkable thing. If you don't pay attention to history, you're doomed to repeat it over and over again. And that's why we're, we're always at war. You know, we, always, we can't learn enough about not doing it in order to rattle the sabers and get mixed up in everything. I was doing the bosun of the Hornet, the USS Hornet, which was present there in St. Augustine. We have several ships we do, a matter of fact. We do Civil War and Seminole War. Seminole War, we do the USS Dale, which was uh, named after Richard Dale, who served as the gun captain on the uh, Bonami Richard of John Paul Jones' ship. was there at the battle and was responsible for having, helping to capture the surface. As the uh, Bonami Richard sank in the sea, they came across and captured the surface. I never knew it, but they sailed the surface over to Holland as trying to come into port. And they said, oh, <laughs> your American flag is not welcome here because we don't want any problems. So John Paul Jones had the sailmaker take and strip the flag apart and put some different colors in there and create the surface flag so that they were welcomed in there. They took care of them and, like they were family, which is pretty cool. Our ship, the Ale, was active from the Second Seminole War, commissioned in, in 1838 when it patrolled the west coast of the United States for the whaling fleet, came into the Battle of Comanche, Mexico, was there for the uh, defeat of the Spanish Navy there, and helped bring it close to Santa Ana's rule over uh, Texas and Texas territory. 
to uh, help bring about a close to that war. She served all the way up until the Civil War. She was part of the blockading fleet on the East Coast, right off the coast of Fort Clinch. Ended up at the end of her career going up to Annapolis, Maryland to become a uh, cadet training ship. And then she was decommissioned and given over to the Maryland Coast Guard and renamed the Oriole. So her total lifespan was 85 years, which is incredible for a Navy ship. They had a wooden hold ship that she was a sloop of war. And uh, Mr. Humphreys that built and designed her, he built five of the Philadelphia class. And Dale was the first one. And he put a lot more stuff into it to try to sell it to Congress. And it was the fastest sloop of war of the Navy at that time. Because, you know, the, the original frigates and stuff were big and bulky and heavy and couldn't go up a lot of shallow rivers. And they wanted more bang for their bucks, so they slimmed them down. Less crew, really well-maintained sail line. She had all nine yards of canvas and completed all her jobs with all sorts of accolades. You talked about the beautiful coast around Fort Pierce. Was it also a port for ships to dock at? The problem is that uh, we didn't have a deep channel here back in uh, the 1830s. They had a natural inlet north of Fort Pierce, up in the area of the United States Naval Steel Museum, which is built up there, a place called uh, Blue Hole Creek. Ships were able to get in there, and Fort Captain was built exactly right across the way from it. Matter of fact, one of the stories that I found was one of the paymasters had to come to Fort Capron to give out paychecks, and he had a chest full of gold, and it was rough weather. He came in through the inlet, and the boat capsized. The chest broke open. So many pieces of gold. There's only like four or five of them, they say, that has ever been found up there, and people have been up there for years looking for them. It was a very shallow inlet, and in about 1921, Mr. Edwin Benny and, and quite a few businessmen sit there and dug the channel out, which is the current inlet, dynamited it, and dredged it. They had an opening in 1921. Our uh, centennial was two years ago for the celebration of it, and we all dressed up and came out there. Since then, how much gold have they found? They only found a few portions of the gold. I mean, somebody else may have found it, but but the record, it was uh, two boys found a snorkel found three coins out of the gold. It's like, you know, <laughs> Mother Earth recovered what she lost. <laughs> you were in the Navy, you got out, but how did you get into this? They're always looking for living historians and word travels around. I've spent 17 years in the Navy on the battleships Jersey and Missouri were two of my claims to fame. Whenever they wanted somebody to give tours of naval history level and stuff, they'd usually have me escort dignitaries around and tell them about the ship's history and everything. And, and I've always loved history ever since I was a kid because my, my family would tell me about all the people in, in our family that did incredible things. We had one lady that was blind and she had a horse. She had no money, so she joined this uh, like circus thing and would jump off this platform into a pool of water on her horse, even though she's blind. And I was like, Wow. So I've always had a love of history. When I came into doing reenacting, it was here at Fort Pierce at the old airport where they did the raid on Fort Pierce, our Civil War battle, or the Battle of Fort Pierce, it was called then. And the Sheriff's Department put it on. There's a lot of reenactors that lived here. So they got together and put on a reenactment to help raise money for the Sheriff's Explorers. And it took off. They did 10 years, and Miss Smith retired. Barbara Smith, she was the Explorer's deputy, because this is my hometown, and the kids need to learn history that you're not getting in all the books. We didn't have that when I was a kid. You sit there and read a book, wrote a report. To actually have people show up in uniform with weapons and, and demonstrate and show how people lived back in that time period, eating off the grill, basically, <laughs> at reenactments. 
the kids, their eyes would just light up like, wow. And if we could get one of those kids hooked on history into reading a book and get them away from the drugs and the modern day obscurities that surround them and get them hooked on history. I had one lady come up to me and said, you know, when I was in school, I hated history. It was stupid. Why have we got to learn this? Yeah, it's old. Why have we got to? She came to our Civil War battle. She got hooked. And now she's a history teacher. And I was like, yeah, that's the greatest compliment anybody can ever tell me. I made a change in somebody's life through the exploits of history of it recreating it to make it come alive. How did you become the personification of Lieutenant Colonel Pierce? A friend of mine, Eugene Sarig, who is my master chief in the Navy Reserve down in West Palm when I got out of the Navy the first time and I got into the reserves, he is a New York flatfoot you know, top. And uh, so we had a security detail down there that I got uh, assigned to. He uh, was telling me about when I got involved in the reenacts. I came up there and they were doing the ghost walk every year, which helps raise money for the Main Street Association, my hometown, which I have to give back to my hometown. I was doing the ghost of Civil War past as a bosun from the CSS Spray, which is the uh, hero of Tallahassee. So he calls me up one day and says, yeah, that gentleman that used to play Colonel Pierce past, and they're looking for somebody to do that. I know you have a lot of Seminole War stuff. So how would you like to be Colonel Pearson? I was like, I couldn't even talk. I was just so excited. I was like, <laughs> I'd be honored to. My hometown is the namesake for my hometown. Just, you got it. So I started doing Colonel Pearson, learning more about him, the history behind him and everything. So I started doing 15-minute talk as Colonel Pierce. We have groups come by the walking tour and talk to him. This year was really cool because I had my cannon. I have a six-pounder cadet cannon, model 1841. I had my cannon crew show up there as first U.S. artillery Company F, which was stationed here at the fort, I had them portraying the cannon crew, Lieutenant Colonel Pierce, and did my talk. And then Lieutenant Danny Duncan, he would sit there and take over and talk about the cannon. Then they'd go through and show how they load it. Then he'd fire it. And it was an immaculate hit. I mean, everybody just like, wow. Of course, we had a couple of people that live in the condominiums right over the top, uh, right beside it, stuff that were yelling at us, hey, knock that off. <laughs> so. It's, it, yeah, it, it's a arousing thing for, especially at nighttime, a can of firing, hear the thunder that reported back and forth across the river like half a dozen times. And uh, back in the day here at the fort, they'd have their musket drills and cannon drills right here. And I tell people about the fort down here, and it's amazing people their whole life have never been to this park. Yet they don't even know it existed. And it's like, it's the landmark of the town. How do we find Fort Pierce from the highway? To get off the turnpike on Okeechobee Road and head east all the way into town, it runs right into Delaware, which runs right into US-1. And the first left-hand turn is the overpass on Citrus, which takes you to Indian River Drive. And you come about, I'd say about a mile or maybe three-quarters of a mile down the river on a two-lane little scenic roadway that's absolutely beautiful. And you'll come to a, a wooden, sort of like a stockade fence with a big sign there that says the Old Fort Park. The Lions Club has rehabbed this park immensely. Matt Samuels and his people, they got together donations and they built kiosks, your information kiosk, about the old fort. The kiosks note that Lieutenant William Tecumseh Sherman served some time in Florida and at Fort Pierce. William Tecumseh Sherman, he was stationed here, his first duty right out of West Point. Somebody sent him to the wilderness of Florida, <laughs> and I guess he wasn't a very liked man or something. But uh, he came here. He was responsible for the capture of Kawakachi, the Indian chief. They have kiosks all about the 
Indians here at the park, the different tribes, including the Ayas and the Mequuans, and they have a picture of the timeline, prehistoric technology of the Florida Indians, and has spears, it has Atland dart, which is a thrown spear, and done such a good job taking care of this. It's well manicured with a lot of cabbage palms, <laughs> the sable palms of our, our state's uh, tree. And, uh, of course, we have some beautiful oaks. There's not as many as there used to be, but they're uh, swamp oaks. Some of these are probably a sapling when uh, the colonel and his men were here. But uh, they used a lot of the cabbage palms and actually built the fort, the outside perimeter picket of the fort out of the cabbage palms. And that became the stockades, and they had blockhouses at both ends, like most of the traditional forts, like Fort Foster, Fort King, Fort Christmas, which they're so amazing. I mean, I wish they'd had that when I was a kid so I'd come down here and play you know, cowboys and Indians. The park itself, is it on the grounds of the former fort stockade? Yes, sir. Matter of fact, it's only a portion of the actual fort property. The north wall of the fort is actually two houses down. Established, I think, 1960-something that the uh, park was established. The uh, one house belonged to Mr. Denauer. They went to put in a pool and dug down and found some of the foundation timbers that uh, were in the park. So... <laughs> I guess he went with a uh, shallower pool. There's so many artifacts that were recovered here, buttons and buckles and and tools and everything else from not only the soldiers, but also from the Indians that had embarked here in camps. Because it's got a freshwater spring. It's not capped, but it runs freely under the road and out into the river still. And they got a little pump house up at the top of the hill. An amazing place to find. The guys had built an observation tower on top of the, the Indian midden here. They had all their targets set up for target practice when uh, uh, Major General Jessup had been. Over in Fort Pierce Historical Center, they have a diorama that was created by a guy, which is a replica of the fort, how it looked back in the day with the sally port and bipods and pulleys to pull stuff up the side of the uh, bluff up into the fort. And, uh, it's about probably around, I'd say around 300 yards wide and about 300 yards deep. It's kind of a, a uh, trapezoid shape, more or less and a gradual uprise all the way up to the midden that's been washed away over the years. It goes all the way down to the river where the road runs. But uh, it's, it's just probably, I'd say probably around eight or 900 cabbage palms on one side, and then the other side of the park is mostly just these beautiful oaks that are twisted and turned by the wind and the, and the sails. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a beautiful place. My sister actually got married here. Uh, Matt Samuels, they did a commissioning of a historical marker out here in front. There's been a historical marker here by the Boy Scouts for years, but there's an information way marker out here that they commissioned. I understand that when you first portrayed Lieutenant Colonel Pierce, you were in for something of a surprise. And I asked him if he'd like to have Colonel Pierce come here and, and uh, greet the guests. So I got here and didn't know that the mayor and chief of police and all the dignitaries are going to be here. So <laughs> Mayor Hudson sitting there says, we had the pleasure today of having Colonel Pierce with us, 175 years old. We dug him up. Doesn't he look good? Colonel Pierce, come, come say a few words. I got up there and I was like, on behalf of myself, Major Childs and Lieutenant Sherman, I'd like to welcome you to our fort. If my staff or I can do anything for you, please feel free to ask. Everybody clapped. The stuff got done. And then the lions, all the lions swarmed around me and went and get pictures with Colonel Pierce in his uniform. So it's like, if you come from a town like my hometown and you're proud of your hometown and all the things it's done. This, this is the first naval amphibious training base in World War II during the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was practiced over on the beach, the North Beach, for the uh, 
landing invasion with landing craft and everything else. The Navy came back and took it over and closed down the beachhead on, on the north side and got ready for the Bay of Pigs. So it's been a piece of history in Florida, one of the most historical places besides St. Augustine, I guess you might say. But it's a living example. The Cracker Cowboys basically were born here. The history of my hometown is just exponentially huge. So volumes and volumes and volumes with all the history. Beanie Backus, the artist by uh, Bob Graham, gave him artist of the decade for his depictions of the Florida landscapes out west. He actually taught the uh, highwaymen how to paint, helped the uh, these young black guys to help make money and, and became prominent citizens. And the inventor of the Crayola crayon, Edwin Benny, he came down here and, and built him a place out there in Immokalee, his uh, homestead, began the uh, Sunrise Movie Theater. And, and they all sit there and contribute to build this place. Yeah, instead of just throwing some money out there and building a subdivision. You know, you know, there's a lot of heart here. When it was constructed, what was the area like that became Fort Pierce? The area here in 1837 was very unpopulated. The Homesteader Act of 1842 really didn't come into effect yet, so there weren't a lot of families here. There's only about four homesteaders in the area. Daniel Fletch was across the river in the old J.C. Park. His family over the years donated that. He was the first homesteader over on the ocean side on the South Island here in Hutchinson Island. The reservation was just a plot of land along the river. It didn't go very far northeast, south, or west. More or less a supply fort. Fort Brook, on the other hand, they had houses and everything. This was just in the wilderness, Daniel Boone type thing. It was one of the only high areas here that had transit to the west to uh, be able to get supplies to the soldiers. They come here, rearm, resupply, and ship stuff out in wagons. But like I said, it only lasted for a few years before they abandoned it and sold it to uh, Mr. Hogue. And he kept the name. How unusual was that in Florida? Most of the forts, Fort Myers, Fort Lauderdale, Fort Jupiter, most of the towns adopted the name as a historical reference. And there are several people that want to name it Can Town because we had canneries here in the late 1800s. We had Egger Town. This guy came down from up north, and his son's name was Egger. He built a house, wanted to name it Egger Town, this, that, and the other. But somebody had some common sense and chose to name it after uh, Colonel Pierce, an Army veteran of 38 years that gave all of his life to America helped defend the, you know, the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. His first assignment was uh, Mackinac Island up in Michigan, where he met his first wife and got married. He was commander of the uh, Fort Mackinac. He'd had several duties where he was fabulously awarded all sorts of awards and appreciation for all of his duties. He's one of those people like in obscurity that actually made a difference in the world for all his service and dedication. Even being from New Hampshire, <laughs> he got to cut the Yankees some slack sometimes. In addition to portraying Army Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Pierce, you also portrayed soldiers from the Seminole Wars. How prepared were you? Well, I started doing Seminole War. I knew nothing about it. My friend Dowling Watford, who was the mayor for a little bit, now he's back to being a city commissioner over in Okeechobee. He came to our radar Fort Pierce, and I had my tent set up. He's like, you ever do a battle of Okeechobee? I was like, oh, there's a Civil War battle over there? He says, no, no, it's Seminole War. I was like, uh, what's that? So that piqued my interest is because he uh, such a nice guy. You know, I, I sort of started going over and helping him with that. And I started learning Seminole War. We went down to Big Cypress Reservation at the Big Cypress Shootout. A friend of mine, Graham Hulls, he's a surveyor and an amateur archaeologist. He wrote a epilogue in one of the uh, archaeological digests or something. 
about how he found that middens and the Indian mounds were roadmap markers so that the migrating tribes could be able to navigate back and forth. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense because you're traveling, hey, GPS, you know, uh, what's 2424 Addison? And it breaks it down and gives you the location. Well, <laughs> back then all they had was the stars and the Indian mounds to guide them. Family Bones directed them in their travels. The more I learn about him, you know, watching Daniel Boone as a kid and seeing Mingo and uh, Grizzly Adams with uh, Dan Haggerty, but the Indian guy was, uh, I can't remember his name, the mountain men and frontiersmen, and it comes right back to the pioneers in Florida that fell under the same philosophy, you know, getting bit by a rattlesnake when your daughter's nine years old, where she has to sit there and take her siblings to go find another family member to live with because you know, she's not enough, old enough to raise them. And she's a girl, so girls couldn't vote or own property or anything else. So they're like trying to keep the family together. So pioneers are the backbone of society where most people today, you lose power, you lose everything. We have a thing about reenact. We don't need power. We don't need anything else. We don't need refrigeration because yeah, we're reenactors. <laughs> we live out live out at these uh, battle sites with no power and everything else. If you know, cooking over the fire and everything, just <laughs> learning how to forge and different types of berries. A Dade battlefield actually had a thing I wanted to go to. I didn't get a chance, but class on foraging in Florida. And I was like, man, you know, there's plenty of food around us. People just don't know and about everything's available. You don't even have to go to a store. You know? There's feral hogs by the thousands. There's rabbits. There's squirrels. Squirrels are really good on a stick over fire. You know, it's, it's excellent. You know, I was raising a hog farm out here, and me and my dad used to butcher like six hogs during the summertime. We'd have a cookout and have like 400 people over. We had frisbees flying. We had horseshoes, and it was so great living out in the country instead of in a city surrounded by people where you have no clue about building a fort, how to live off the land, how to appreciate what is around you. And you're stuck in a building. So now kids with video games, getting them out into a reenacting field and getting to learn to feel what the earth is like, how the sun feels and how bitter cold it's going out to a reenactment up in uh, Pensacola or somewhere like that. In January, it's like the temperature drops down to like 20 degrees and you're like, wow, we need to throw some more wood on the fire, you know. <laughs> it's like, well, where's the, where's the thermostat? So I can adjust the thermostat. I'm sorry, you left that at home. <laughs> some of these pioneers took advantage of the Armed Occupation Act of 1842. Well, under Armed Occupation Act of 1842, they'd come down into Florida. You're giving up because of land. You had to care for it. You had to defend it against pirates, British, whoever. Florida is just a territory. It wasn't a state yet. So when it became a territory in 1821, they started having problems with pirates and British trying to come back and take it again. And there's always somebody out there wanting a bigger piece of the pie. They'd give land to you and you had to sign off that you're going to defend that land. You're going to plant it. You're going to clear it and take care of it. It's free land. Yeah, free. I don't have to pay $3,000 a month for a little tiny apartment when I got the land. <laughs> you're kidding me. They came down and mainly around most of the forts because the forts were established. People knew that there's a reputation there of protection and people would typically build their homes around the forts in the area of the forts because they felt safe. And uh, they knew if the army had to come back in, there's a fort right there. They'd come in and occupy it and fend off anybody. People, especially from Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of the farming people, especially the Scots and the Irish and the Germans, because they weren't too welcome up north in the big cities. So they came down here by droves and established this. 
just north of here is an entire area they call Viking, which were actually Scandinavians that came up here. They didn't like to be around people that didn't speak their language. So they established a small town up there. They called it Viking. There's a cemetery called Viking. People came down to Florida, number one, because of the fishing, the game, the sunlight, the warmth during the seasons, just like nowadays. People are like, why'd you come live in Florida? Well, you know, it got too cold up in New York, Chicago, and I come down to Florida. So it's like, well, there's Texas, there's California. Well, you know, Florida's like a straight line, you know, with the, with the interstate. And, you know, and uh, back then they had all the Indian trails that uh, developed in the military roads. Fort Jupiter, actually, in the Battle of Lukahatchee down there. The second battle was Justice Battle, and Major Lauderdale from Tennessee with his men, the militia, they sit there and had a five-day running battle with the Seminoles there that just fought at Okeechobee a couple of weeks before. They beat Seminoles trying to catch them to take them out to Oklahoma. They chased them down to New River and built a fort down there, which is now Fort Lauderdale's the name of the city. But uh, him and his men built a fort down there, and the fort was named after him. It's one of the only forts in Florida named after a militiaman out of a, another state militia. He was wounded at the very end of all the skirmishes. They put him on a ship over Fort Brooke, take him back up the river to Tennessee, and he died just before they hit New Orleans. He was buried in New Orleans. His family didn't get any word about what happened to him, so they worried, contacted the Army. They took him to the grave, and he was exhumed and taken back up to Tennessee and, and reinterred. And there's a statue down there. I haven't been to the park yet to see it. I've been wanting to. But there's a statue down there dedicated to Major Lauderdale and his force. There's no image or anything else anybody ever created of his face. So the artist muted his face. So it's dedicated to Major Lauderdale, who is namesake for Fort Lauderdale. Most of the forts, according to my friend Jesse James Marshall, everybody calls him Archie. Most people say, yeah, Google this. And, and uh, most people say, no, we'll just Archie it. Send him an email, and he sends you back five pages of information that he knows about. Uh, I could sit there and listen around the campfire to him at night for hours, and he's just so cool to all the information he has locked up in that noggin. I think, you need to do some YouTube videos. You need to get it out there. If something happens to you, all that goes like right down the drain. It's like old timers. You always tell people, get with your elders, your family. Get with the history of your family, where they're from, why they came here, why they did this, why they did that. Document it. Get recordings of it because you know, when they're gone, it's all gone. History just disappears. It's disappearing every day. You know, World War II veterans and Vietnam and Korea and all these guys, they're living legacies of freedom of America. Maybe not so good times, maybe not so bad times, but it's all our history. It's, it's a history of every race, creed, color. The very essence of La Florida is written in all these scrolls in history. And it's up to us to keep those scrolls alive so that 100 years down the road, people say, well, what is this Fort Pierce I heard about? Well, that's up to us to sit there and tell them. You know, what's up with Fort Brooke? What's up with, with Fort Van Swearinger? What's up with Post Number 2, now called Fort Vinton? Where did all these come from? Why were they here? People are like, oh, well, I've seen a sign for it, but I don't know nothing about it. That's what our job is, to put the flesh and bones back on people that can't talk for themselves anymore and keep them alive. If we can make a difference in some of these young people's lives and stop all this crime and everything else and get them to realize that we're all human beings. We all bleed the same color blood. We all sit there and breathe the same air. We're here to try to help each other and make a better world. That's what it's all about. Jim O'Dell, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority. God bless you, Patrick, and thank you for inviting me. This is very cool, and I greatly appreciate your talk. You have a blessed day, my friend.
This podcast is copyright 2023. The Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminolewars.podbean.com or seminolewars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.